book of Acts together. And we come to chapter 9. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave and uh, they'll catch you and give you a Bible, it'll be marked to our passage we're studying today for your convenience. And then, as always, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. It's the old saying, you show me a Bible that's worn out and I'll show you a Christian who isn't. So wear that Bible out. It's good for us. Acts chapter 9, we'll pick things up in verse 8. Uh, here, uh, Saul of Tarsus ultimately to become known. The apostle Paul is uh, saved here on the Damascus road. And then Saul rose, arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a certain disciple, and I want you to notice that phrase, a certain disciple. We're going to talk about that this morning. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and uh, said to him, named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to, blind all, uh, to bind all who call upon your name in Damascus. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel. And I want you to notice that phrase too, a chosen vessel. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And then Ananias went his way, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened, and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Let's pray together now. Lord, thank you so much for, as we've sung today, for you being our strong tower, that we have you as a place to run to, that you take seriously your protection of us, not only physically in this life, but also and uh, doubtless supremely protecting us spiritually, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And we thank you that you've made a place for that, a relationship with you through your Son, even as we've sung this morning. And we pray that you would continue to be the lifter of our heads, Lord, the circumstances in the world, the circumstances of our individual life can be so dominating and, uh, and thus uh, discouraging. 
We pray that you use now our time in your word to lift our heads so that we leave this place today with our gaze fully upon you. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to continue our examination of the conversion of the Apostle Paul to Christianity or to the way, as it's sometimes called and was called at that time, in church history, because the Holy Spirit himself devotes such a significant block of the book of Acts to his conversion. I think, of course, that it's very, very vital that every single Christian be not only uh, superficially familiar with the Apostle Paul, but very, very familiar with the Apostle Paul, if for no other reason than the fact that he is, uh, was and continues to be the single most influential Christian in the history of church history, but also given the fact that the Holy Spirit himself chose the Apostle Paul as the human instrument by which to provide the world with 13 and perhaps 14 of the 22 epistles that make up the New Testament, including the book of Revelation. It is impossible to overstate the influence of this man in human history for God and for Christianity. And his influence reaches right into this room this morning, and it reaches right into every single one of our individual lives. We must know something about him. Indeed, I think it's important for us to know everything about what God has revealed to us in his conversion here. Last week, we examined his conversion on the road to Damascus. And next week, uh, we'll examine the years-long preparation that occurred prior to uh, the beginning of his public ministry. But today, I want to focus on those early days in his Christian life. They're recorded for us here, and I want to address them in a message that is entitled, A Chosen Vessel, A Certain Disciple, those two wonderful phrases that are found uh, in the passage. A certain disciple being the Holy Spirit's description of a man by the name of Ananias, there in verse 10, and a chosen vessel being Jesus' description of Paul in verse 15. We remember that Paul or Saul of Tarsus at the time that he had made havoc of the church in the city of uh, Jerusalem, imprisoning a great number of the Christians who were in the city and then driving out uh, a multitude of others, scattered them out of the city of Jerusalem. They ran for other cities for their own life and limb, for their safety, for their very lives. And no doubt a significant number of those Christians then made their way to Damascus. And here, uh, you know, Saul of Tarsus, knowing that this has occurred now, wants to enlarge his persecution of Christians from Jerusalem then to Damascus where they had fled. And while on his journey to Damascus, as he approaches the city very nearly there at this point in time, God knocked Paul off of his high horse, if not actually, then certainly figuratively. A very proud, very arrogant man, 
and he humbled him right there on the spot. And the end result was that Saul of Tarsus became a Christian right there on that spot. And then Jesus then instructed him in verse 6, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. He's blinded by the experience. So he, he, he's been very confronted with how uh, frail a human being he is for all of his uh, hubris and all of his uh, high thoughts concerning himself. And blinded by the experience, he was led, <clears throat> excuse me, by the hand into Damascus by his traveling companions and brought to the home of a man by the name of Judas where he sat for three days and three nights, blind in that condition, and he neither ate nor drank. Interesting that this kind of fast that he took was a voluntary fast. Uh, Jesus did not say, go into the city and do not eat and do not drink. Paul does that in and of his own accord. And I'm inclined to believe that what had just happened to him on the road to Damascus was so mind-boggling, so disorienting to him uh, emotionally and mentally and, and spiritually as well. It had so rocked the foundation of his world, of his Phariseeism, his understanding of the Bible, his understanding of a relationship with God, his very relationship with God, as pathetic and as poor as it was prior to becoming to, to know Christ. And... Um, and all, everything now in his life, spiritually and otherwise, has been shattered. And so he sits now in darkness, and you take this great legal mind that God had given to him, and he spends now three days and three nights without interruption and taking in the implications of what has just happened in his life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead following his death for the sins of mankind uh, upon the cross. And as that's going on, his mind is going out in a thousand different directions and going out a thousand miles in all of those directions. And no food, no drink was more important to him than that undivided attention given to his thoughts related to the impact of what has happened in his life. Now notice Ananias described here as a certain disciple. So here is, is Paul, and he's in this condition in the city of Damascus. And in the meantime, Jesus, and it's Jesus, verse 17, that speaks to Ananias in this vision. He appears to uh, Ananias there in the city of Damascus. God knew right where to find him. Uh, you ever think you're lost? Ever think that God doesn't know your address, doesn't know how to talk to you, where to find you? There are times in life that are like that. We feel we're so anonymous or overlooked. God knows where all of us live. He knows how to reach us. We're never forgotten by him. He then, verse 10, calls Ananias by name. That always feels good, doesn't it? When somebody really important, like God, remembers your name, it's a good feeling. We all like that feeling. And, uh, and uh, Jesus declared concerning each of us as Christians that he said concerning himself, but he who enters by the doors, the shepherd of the sheep, to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them 
out. And so we sing the song, I have a maker, he formed my heart. Even uh, before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. And it's true. He knows our name. I think about Isaiah chapter 49, and some of you might be thinking, oh, he's going on a tangent here. But there's a reason for it. And uh, Isaiah, by the Spirit of God, declared, uh, can a woman forget her nursing child? Impossible. And the Lord declares, and not have compassion on the son of her womb. Surely they may forget uh, even a nursing mother. And the Lord says, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. Uh, Your walls are continually before me. And so this might reassure some of us here this morning that feel forgotten by God. Some of you might have come into the room today saying, Lord, I feel like my prayers are hitting the walls or the ceiling and coming back to me like you've forgotten about me. You don't even know my name. I'm being overlooked by you. And the Lord wants to let you know that it isn't true at all. Ananias answered in verse 10, here I am uh, Lord. And I th- I, one of the things that I think is important for us as Christians to recognize here is Jesus appears to Ananias in a vision, and then notice how comfortable the early church was with the supernatural of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural of the Christian life. He didn't freak out, didn't jump out of his chair 10 feet, and what in the world is going on, and the hair on the back of his neck is lifted up or anything like that, not freaked or surprised in any way. He just simply replied immediately and naturally. And when I see how uh, relaxed uh, the early church was concerning the things of the Spirit makes me say concerning myself and concerning us to give us that same kind of peace with the supernatural of the Christian life, to expect it, to be comfortable when it happens, to enjoy it when it happens. It's all a part of the Christian life. After all, if Jesus is risen from the dead, and He is, then we shouldn't be surprised that He's going to speak to us. Now, the Lord's instruction to Ananias, it's recorded there in verses 11 and 12, he was to arise, go to a particular address there in the city of Damascus. Damascus was a very large city at that time, one of the oldest cities uh, in the entire uh, human history. And so he was to go to the house of a man by the name of Judas. He lived on Straight Street. And it's interesting, uh, so many of the cities as they developed in the ancient world under the influence of the Grecian Empire, they were very linear and uh, geometric in the design of their cities and so forth. And so as new city centers were being developed uh, during that age, the streets would be wide, they would be long, they would be straight. And the main east-west corridor through the city of Damascus at that time, the street exists to this day, though Damascus, of course, is much larger than it was then. But it was the main east-west street uh, of the ancient city of Damascus. He was to go to this uh, house of Judas on that street where, verse 11, he would find Saul of Tarsus 
uh, praying. And he informed, verse 12, Ananias that he had prepared the way for Ananias to go see Saul because he had given a vision to Saul that a man named Ananias was going to come to him, lay hands on him, and he would regain his sight. So up to this point in time, Paul has no idea that he's going to regain his sight. It's only when the Lord appears to him, also in a vision, and speaks to him about his sight, it's the first time he has any hope that he's not going to remain blind for the rest of his life. And as you might imagine, and it's recorded for us here in verses 13 and 14, some of us can see ourselves uh, in these verses, Ananias balked at these instructions that the Lord gave to him. And have you ever counseled God? Or had God give you some uh, direction related to something, and surely um, he wouldn't give us this direction if he knew the full story. So Ananias is going to give him the rest of the story here. By the way, Lord, this is the guy that really made a mess of your church there in Jerusalem. Everybody scattered out of there and all, and many of them fleeing here. He wasn't content with that. He's come to Damascus with letters from all of the religious leaders to come and lock us up, imprison us, and and persecute us the way that he uh, did the others here, and uh, maybe it would be best just to leave them blind. And, uh, and any Christian in Damascus would have understood this conversation at that time. And so he needs some reassurance that Saul isn't a danger any longer to either him or all the rest of the Christians in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, it appears that Ananias at this point had not yet heard of Paul's uh, conversion on uh, the road. And then uh, beautifully and I think majestically, Jesus described uh, Saul's conversion to Ananias. Verse 15, "'Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake.'" And so Ananias then, verses 17 through 19, obedient, he entered the house. You imagine the emotion that he's feeling. Here's this monster. Here's this horrible human being. Here's this man who, if, if God had not stopped him, would have ended up arresting me and imprisoning me and my entire family. I mean, the intensity of the scene is right there. And then Ananias, verse 17, laid hands on Saul and choked him to death while he still had the chance. <laughs> no, that's not what happened there. It's just pure grace. He comes up, lays his hands on on, uh, on Saul. Remember, Saul's in a very vulnerable situation, and God has put him in that place. He is blind. He is in a house. He does not, you know, all of this hostage-taking he wanted to do and everything to the Christians, well, he is in their shoes at this point in time. He's as vulnerable to being persecuted or abused or killed as he's ever been in his life. And here God sends a Christian Saul had been warned by God that, that uh, this person would come, and, uh, 
and then even more gracious than laying his hands on Saul, Ananias then referred to him as Brother Saul in verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, and so forth. Wow, what a welcome into the family of God. This is something different. No Pharisee would have done it. No Jewish religious leader that Paul knew in the city of Jerusalem would have done it. This is a different family. This is a different kingdom. And then Ananias in verse 17 announced that he was the Ananias that Jesus told you would be coming. And through Ananias, Saul then received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to just take like a little theological time out that's of interest to some of you. Uh, the rest of you, you can think of lunch uh, or whatever uh, you might think of. Now we want to hold all of you in here. It is very interesting that here you have, in verse 17, the Apostle Paul receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit three days after being born again. So again, as we've seen in the book of Acts, uh, over and over again, there's the teaching today that there is uh, no second experience with the Holy Spirit, that when a person becomes a Christian, they receive everything at the moment of conversion. I don't disagree that that can happen and maybe is the usual thing that happens in a Christian's life. But I cannot agree with the teaching where somebody says, all right, buckaroo, uh, you got everything you were supposed to get from the Holy Spirit when He came into your life at the time of co conversion. Now pull up your boots and get on with it. Uh, no, there is a baptism with the Holy Spirit in addition to the Holy Spirit coming into our lives as Christians. Jesus spoke of it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives as Christians, giving us the power now to be a witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so here is another place where there is a gap of time between conversion and the receiving of this power. So it happened on the day of Pentecost with the disciples, the 120 in the room. The apostles were there. They had received, as Jesus breathed upon them, the Holy Spirit days before the day, uh, that baptism with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Later on in Acts chapter 8, in that great revival in Samaria, the Samaritans believed and they were water baptized, but it was some days later before they were baptized with the Holy Spirit when Peter and John came. Here is another uh, example of a gap between the two experiences. Later on, I think it's in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, we will see the very same thing again. Why do I take the time to mess with that today? Here's why. If you sit here as a Christian this morning, and you know you're born again, you know you surrendered your life to the Lord, and you know that you're on your way to heaven, you know you have a relationship with God, but every single day of your life is a struggle against sin or some particular sins or a struggle with yourself, and it's a struggle that you're losing. Uh, you don't have victory in your life. You don't have a power within your life. And I know what it is in the early days of, of my Christian life. There was a gap between the moment of my conversion and the time of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And nobody wanted to live for God more than I wanted to. Nobody tried to live for God more than I was trying. And yet it was continual failure until I received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And now here was the power to be able to live the life I was trying to. And so if you find yourself in that place today, 
but you've been raised in an environment that you got spiritually, that you got everything you got at conversion, and there's no second experience with the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you that there is, and to give consideration to it. And at the end of this service, when there's pastors and other men and women up in the front immediately after uh, our service here to go up and say, I lack that power. I lack the power to live a life like Christ in any environment that He puts me in. I lack it at home. I lack it at work. I lack it at school. I lack it on business trips. I lack it on mission trips to the other side of the world. I lack that, and I want that. And God promises that He will give that to you. Jesus said, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, and we do, He said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so there's hope for you. One of the most just crippling, horrible, horrible things is to be a Christian trying to live this thing in my own strength and not yet aware of the power that God gives in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then the importance of being refilled with the Holy Spirit, not resaved, but refilled with the power each day to live this life. And so Paul, subsequent to this, baptism with the Holy Spirit in his life, verse 18, he was water baptized. He partook of some food there in verse 19 and immediately strengthened him, as you might imagine, after having uh, fasted for three uh, days and three nights. Now, allow me just a couple of applicational observations concerning Ananias here. And of the two, Paul is going to go on and be the one who is going to be used by God to change the whole world. He's going to change human history. But at the same time, he used Ananias in Paul's life to make him that person, to become that person that would then change not only his world, but human history. As someone has put it, even small wheels play a significant role in the working of God's machinery. And it's true. There is no machinery working and operating effect effectively without each part doing its part. All of you who work with equipment, you we know, and even as we become more technologically advanced, how one little thing that isn't operating properly can shut down an entire city, can shut down who knows what. What was I coming to my? So were some of us watching the Golden State Warrior game here recently in, a, in a, just a fit of carnality? Of, and uh, somehow in this, uh, in the part of the, as they're doing the broadcast, they lost the broadcast? Excuse me? ABC television? We're talking about the team that set the record for most wins in the, an NBA season? This is the NBA playoffs, and you lost it? Well, they didn't do it deliberately. The building didn't collapse. Some little tiny glitch somewhere, some little thing that nobody ever notices went out, and the rest of us are looking at blue screens, and people at NBC are running up and down the halls until they can figure out how to fix it. Well, it's just the way that it is. Things move, not just on the big pieces of a machinery, but the small pieces as well. And 
In that sense, we can speak of one part of a machine being more prominent than another part, but we can never speak of it being more vital or more important than another part. And of course, Paul used the exact same imagery of the human body to make the same point to the church at Corinth. He said, now indeed, there are many members, and yet one body, lots of parts to a body, but it's one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. What do you do when you get a piece of dirt in your eye? Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. He said, no, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker, seem to be weaker, are necessary. The interesting thing about our culture, and all of you observe it about our culture, is how celebrity-driven we are. I don't want to hear about the Kardashians for the rest of my life, nothing against them personally or anything like that, but um, I've heard their name far too often for ten lifetimes. As soon as they discover a cure for cancer or the cold or they develop some kind of technology for driverless cars and they get the glitches out of that, then I want to hear their name, Uh, but not for what I hear it about. So the culture, so celebrity-driven and and obsesses with the fame, uh, famous, and uh, 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 obsesses with people who have attained to fame. And it's so much around us that we can tend to forget that the nation that we live in moves forward for the most part based upon the faithfulness of those whose names will never ever become a household word. And what is true of a nation is also true of the kingdom of God. It moves forward largely on the faithfulness of the Ananiases within the body of Christ. And if we lose sight of that, then we can tend to overlook or even begin to despise the relative uh, anonymity of our Christian service. And then we wrongly conclude, uh, my ministry is insignificant, my service is insignificant, it's trivial, it's unnecessary. As my uh, old friend Lee Shaw Uh, declared uh, concerning this kind of a feeling that we can sometimes come under. And uh, his name is Gold in my heart. He led my wife to the Lord. But when somebody would begin to feel that way, Lee would say, oh, I just feel like dirt under the toenail of the body of Christ. I'm just a nothing. I'm just a nobody, you know. And he would just try to pull us out of that kind of thing. But that can be the kind of feeling that a person has. I'm nothing. My life isn't amounting to anything. It's not making any kind of a difference. There's a famous Bible, a radio Bible teacher, most of you are familiar with him, by the name of J. Vernon McGee. He's now in heaven. And he expressed his conviction that God uses a human instrument in the conversion of every individual, even if uh, the individual may not be present at, at the time of the conversion. And uh, he speaks of these kind of ananiases, these people that are overlooked, not only by the world, but so often by the rest of the body of Christ, but how necessary they are and we are. He said, recently, I received a letter from a man who is a barber, and a certain man had been his customer for 20 years. And one time when the customer got out of the chair and was paying for his haircut, he asked the barber, 
Have you ever heard Dr. McGee on the radio? And the barber said he had not. And so the customer walked over to the radio, turned it to the station on which he could be heard in that town, and he said, every morning at 8 o'clock, you listen to him. And that was the last time these two men saw each other. The customer died suddenly within a day or two, and you can guess the rest of the story, McGee said. The barber started listening to the program. Uh, he had been listening for, to it for two years when he wrote to me, and he uh, has come to know uh, Jesus Christ as Savior. The human uh, instrument in his conversion was an old customer. Uh, he declared of Dr. C.I. Schofield, the man who edited the Schofield Bible, one of the most widely used Bibles in uh, the English world. And he said concerning Dr. Schofield, before his conversion, he was an outstanding international lawyer. But he had the problem of being a very heavy drinker. I did, actually, I didn't know that about him. Uh, he had a godly mother who prayed for him continually, and she died before Dr. Schofield was converted. And on one occasion, Dr. Lewis Sperry Chafer, uh, another great name in Christianity, was praying with Dr. Schofield. And he told us that he heard Dr. Schofield pray, Lord, if my mother doesn't know that I've been converted, would you please tell her? <laughs> it's beautiful, isn't it? It's very touching. And so here is a mother, not a household name. Here's a mere customer uh, who knows the Lord in a barber shop and how God uh, used them and uses us, uses people like Ananias. Many years ago, I remember reading about uh, a very, very famous Hollywood actress who became a Christian. It was a very much a Damascus Road experience. Uh, if you had probably asked most of the world who would be the last person in Hollywood at that time who would become a Christian, she would have probably been in, in the top three of the list, and yet uh, she ends up coming to know the Lord. And I thought to myself, how in the world did that happen? Well, it was reported that she had a chauffeur. Chauffeur was a woman, and the chauffeur was a Christian who deeply knew the Lord deeply, loved the Lord deeply. And the chauffeur, in these conversations, as they're just driving here and there, and all, ultimately, the conversation about God came up. And the chauffeur shared Christ uh, with her. And the actress then began to attend church and Bible studies and reportedly gave her life uh, to the Lord. You see, uh, you, uh, you see these people in life where you look at them and you think they'll never, ever get saved. Uh, their power, uh, their wealth, their fame allows them to put walls up around them that are so thick that it looks like nobody's going to be able to penetrate those and get to their heart. And God says, you won't believe it, but I've got a certain disciple, a little chauffeur in place who really, really loves me, and I am going to use her. And so he did, just as with Ananias. It is not our job or our responsibility supremely to make our lives count for God. That is not our responsibility. It is God's responsibility to use me as he sees fit. But like Ananias, it's my job to simply be in my place where he can find me 
and then to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit and then obey what He calls me to do. There are no and there is no insignificant ministry or insignificant minister Everything God has called each of us to do is significant and it's necessary. And never believe the devil's lies that what you're doing, what we're doing, isn't making a difference. And the most powerful weapon that the devil uses against uh, a servant of the Lord is discouragement in this idea that God isn't using me. I can't see how He's using me. I can't, it looks like my life's being wasted. It looks like there's no difference because of my life. And that discouragement can begin to overwhelm you. And if that's uh, the place that you're in today, again, don't believe that at all. You are a certain disciple and valuable to the work of the Lord. Well, let's move on in closing from a certain disciple, Ananias, to a couple closing observations related to the Apostle Paul, who's described by Jesus as a chosen vessel. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus declared three things concerning the Apostle Paul at this moment in his life. And notice them. They're important. In verse 15, first, he is a chosen vessel of God. Second, that he has been chosen to bear Jesus' name before kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel. And third, that he would suffer many things in being faithful to God's call upon his life. God, Jesus calls him a chosen vessel, literally a vessel of choice. And the Apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, was exactly the vessel that the Lord desired for his purposes at this moment in human history. Paul was a chosen vessel religiously. He had been raised in a Jewish home. He had been brought up around the synagogue. He was thoroughly familiar with the Scriptures. Ultimately, he was trained in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most highly regarded rabbis at that time. Ultimately, he became a Pharisee himself. And as a result, he knew the Jews inside and out. He knew how they thought. He knew what they thought and why. He knew their understanding of the Scriptures. He knew their rights. He knew their traditions. He knew their worship. He knew the difficulties that anyone would face in trying to reach them with the gospel. And then also he possessed a great love for the Jewish people. But he was also a chosen vessel educationally. For this calling, the Lord needed a man who not only knew the Hebrew Scriptures, but also was a man whom he might use to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He needed someone who understood not only the Jewish world, but the Gentile world, someone who was well-versed in Greek culture, Greek thought, Greek philosophy. And the interesting thing about the Apostle Paul was that he was not born and raised in Israel or in Jerusalem. He was born and raised in a city called Tarsus, and that city was and is located in modern-day Turkey. It was a university town. It was a place where the intellectual atmosphere was dominated by Greek thought and philosophy and by learning. He also was a chosen vessel socially, 
And for this calling, God needed someone who would freely travel around the Roman Empire on missionary journeys, someone who possessed Roman citizenship. And because Paul was born into a family that enjoyed Roman citizenship, he became a Roman citizen at birth. And you look at the specifics of his life, the specifics of who he was and what he was long before he ever became a Christian. And he was chosen by God, being fashioned by God. That's a very, very specific list of requirements that God had for a man to use at this moment in human history, steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, possessing a Roman citizenship, well-versed in Greek-Gentile culture and thinking. He had to be more than a Jew, or he would not have known the first thing about how to reach the Gentile culture. And yet he needed to be more than a Roman, uh, or the strictest sects of the, among the Jews would not have given him a moment's hearing uh, in him speaking about the Jewish Messiah. Now, Saul had been prepared for God for this task long before his conversion. And what is true of the Apostle Paul is true of every single one of us and the ministry and the neighborhood and the family and the situations that God has called us to serve the Lord in. I think it is one a very interesting thing to observe, to become born again and become a Christian as a human being. And then once we become a Christian, then to look back at our childhoods, look back at our other life experiences, and realize that God was not only preparing us for salvation, but He was at the very same time preparing us for our place of service in His kingdom. And the Bible teaches that that's so. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purposes. And we see in the Apostle Paul how God was able to take all that he was before becoming a Christian and then work them together for good. Even all of his sin, even all of his failures of, of his past, and all of that sin and all of that failure, I'm convinced, made Paul into a worshiper of God that he might never have become otherwise. He was the perfect vessel in which to take a message of grace to both Jew and Gentile, having received so much grace from God himself. And I think that sometimes we can look back on the years before we became a Christian and look at them and say that was a complete waste of time. I wish I hadn't wasted all those years. I'd have become a Christian long before I did, but they're not completely wasted. And when we surrender to God, He uses much of what we experienced and learned there to make us into a lover of God that we would never otherwise be to leave us in awe of His wisdom and have a regard and a respect for it that we might never have if we hadn't spent so many years thinking we were so smart and exploring our own wisdom and the wisdom of people and ending up bankrupt at the end of it and then possessing a greater understanding and compassion for sinners that we might otherwise have. 
The Lord spoke through the prophet Joel to his people in the Old Testament, and so I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Isn't it a wonderful thing to walk with the Lord for a while and to look back and to have some kind of a life experience and, and uh, not overtly Christian. It wasn't a Christian thing that we were doing, but it caused us to learn something in life, to see something, to learn something about people, uh, to learn something about uh, circumstances in life, and to pick that kind of a history up, and then to have the Lord then fashion us into a certain kind of person as a result of it, and then use it for His glory once we become a Christian. And so he did with Paul, and so he does with each of us. Interestingly, the Lord showed Paul in verse 16 all that he would suffer fulfilling his call uh, upon Paul's life, and he showed it to him ahead of time. This alone, there are many other reasons, but this alone makes uh, the Apostle Paul a greater man than me. I happen to have laughed very heartily at listening to a Bible study tape by Chuck Smith many, many years ago when he talked about God's call upon his life into the ministry and the first 17 years of his ministerial life was very, very difficult before the Calvary Chapel phenomenon and the Jesus movement broke forth. But he declared that God called me into the ministry before I had enough sense to say no. And sometimes it's like that. Some of us sit here in this room and we're Christians. You say, I don't know if I'd have become a Christian if I'd have known he showed, if he, if he showed me everything that was going to mean between then and now. I don't know about that. I might have hesitated. So he shows those of us who are a little bit weaker, he shows it to us a layer at a time as we're able to handle it. He shows Paul everything in that room, everything that he's going to go through in his life. And Paul just partially encapsulates it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of the gospel? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides all the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches. Paul knew all of that and more in that little Judas's house on the straight street city of Damascus. And yet, when all of that was presented to him by Jesus, Paul accepted it. And he agreed to it, and he took the plunge. 
And the word suffer that is used there in that verse is an interesting word in the Greek. It speaks literally of undergoing an experience, usually difficulty, difficult, and normally with the implication of physical or psychological suffering. It's the same word that's used for suffering that uh, is used by Luke in writing the book of Acts to describe Jesus' suffering on the cross in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And yet Paul signed up for it, and he considered it a privilege to do so. And interestingly enough, that 20 years after being involved in his Christian service and 30 long years after being saved, when he wrote his letter to the church at Philippi, he declared every other life and the life that he had been living before to be dung in comparison, to be garbage, to be refuse. He said, therefore, we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ, but indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and yes, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And it is important that we bring a proper perspective to our Christian life and our Christian experience. And the wider the gap that exists between our expectations of God and the Christian life and what God actually promises the Christian life will be this side of heaven, the greater that gap that exists, then the more we're going to struggle and feel like God isn't being fair with us. And when the atheist, he hits hard times in his life, he can't blame, he blames the world, he blames other people, he blames his circumstances for his problems, but he never blames God. He doesn't believe in God. But when a Christian hits hard times in their lives, really, really hard times, there can be that temptation to blame God and to charge Him with being unfair. And maybe some of us feel that way in some circumstance you're in here this morning. And we can tend to forget that Jesus was open at the very beginning about this thing that He called us into when He declared, These things I have spoken unto you, that in Me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. To the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, a church that was undergoing tremendous suffering, 
Jesus declared unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and come to life. I know your works, your tribulation, poverty, but you're rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Don't fear any of those things that you're about to suffer. Suffer? Yes, suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. In the words of that golden oldie, sometimes we need to hear, I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. And he didn't. But sometimes we believe he did. And we have to remember the Christianity that he called us into and was upfront about so that when we experience that part of it as well, it doesn't discourage and disorient us. And so I close with this. What got Paul through the long decades of suffering that marked his Christian life and his ministry? The promise of heaven. The promise of heaven. The coming reward that he would receive there at the end of this life. He wrote in his very final chapter of his final letter of his life in writing to a protege by the name of Timothy. He said, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So have an ice cream every once in a while. Have some fun along the way in this life. But dear Christian, never forget that this is not our home. Heaven is our home. And we are headed there as Christians as surely as you are sitting in the seat that you're sitting in here this morning. The writer of the book of Hebrews says concerning us, for we have no continuing city here. This is not our home, but we seek the one to come. The New Living Translation puts it this way, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. That same writer of the book of Hebrews declared concerning Abraham that we look for, like him, a city which has foundations. There is no city that has foundations in this world. We look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And Paul wrote, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Have you lost heart? In the midst of your suffering, someone or two or a hundred of us this morning, then this reminder of heaven will do you good. 
This is not our home. This is not as good as it gets for us. This is as bad as it will ever be for us. We are not home yet, but we are surely on our way home. And then the additional reminder that Jesus himself is going to be faithful to deliver you there. In Jude, verse 24, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, you'll make it. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And we sing, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Why? Because we're not supposed to. This is not our home. I remember seeing a poster in a home of a Christian <clears throat> here in Modesto many, many years ago. It was a poster of Jesus. His face was turned. It was obscured. You couldn't see it. And, uh, but it was clearly a representation of him. And on the poster was written, Jesus speaking, I never said it would be easy. I said it would be worth it. And that's the truth. I never said it would be easy. I said it would be worth it. And time is going to reveal it to be so, as the Apostle Paul, who knew so much about suffering, and a bit about heaven declared, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And finally, this verse from Hebrews 12, And therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then here it is, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A friend of mine, he's a great encourager and a great friend, but he sent me a text last night, and as he closed the text, he gave this quote, and I've never, ever heard it before, and I thought it was great, and I want to share it with you because it has to do with what we're talking about this morning, you know, how hard we work to keep the sun out of our eyes, and he wrote, keep the sun, the S-O-N, keep the sun in your eyes, <laughs> and that's the truth about it, to keep our eyes upon Jesus in the course of this pilgrimage and how significant and important that is in our lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, I pray and we pray. There's such an ebb and flow to the Christian life and all of us come into this room in various spiritual conditions. And we pray for each one, Lord, that you have called into the position of an Ananias, overlooked by and large by the world and very often uh, severely un underappreciated within 
the body of Christ. And then the devil adds his lies and his voice and how worthless such a life is and how they're not making a difference and it wouldn't mean anything if they were to quit the children's ministry or to quit the youth ministry or to quit what they're doing at work for Christ or wherever their ministry might be. And we just pray today in Jesus' name that you would just push back on that lie and restore, Lord, a confidence and a hope concerning the significance of the call and the importance of it that you have placed upon their life. And we pray, Lord, for each one that stands before you that is in the midst of suffering that they could never put into words and never explain to another person. Only you know the depth of what they find themselves in today. And we pray that today you would remind them and by your Spirit speak to the intimacy of their heart that you know and that you understand and that this is not their home but that heaven is their home and that one day you will deliver them safely to that place. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage and strengthen them with this voice of your Spirit from this passage. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.